If you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and open with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And just to review where we are so far, we've gone through the first two chapters, and the preacher has shown us what he calls reality. Uh, what it, he's shown us the reality of what he calls life under the sun, right? Life under the sun. Uh, and what he means by that is life in this fallen world, um, life outside of Eden, and he says that life under the sun is marked by vanity. And we've talked about that word, which is Havel. Uh, and what that means is that life is oftentimes frustrating. It's oftentimes repetitive and puzzling. It's a lot of times out, just outside of our reach, right? We can't manipulate it or can't grasp onto it. And because life is this way, the preacher says, it's impossible to find permanent and ultimate gain here. Right? What gain is there from our toil here? And I think this is why Ecclesiastes is so important for us to hear, right? Because we don't always believe that. We don't always believe that life is Havel, um, especially as intelligent young people or especially as people with potential. We turn to things like pleasure or knowledge or work, and we turn to these things as tools that we think we can leverage in order to somehow master life. But as we've been learning in these first couple chapters already, um, the preacher warns us that it doesn't work that way. And he warns us from his own experience. He says, you can't control life. And on top of that, uh, the great human problem is that we all die, right? Death uh, happens to all of us. There's nothing that we can do in this life to eliminate that reality. And there's nothing we can do to eliminate the vanity of life under the sun. But we also learned that there's a perspective that you can have, right? There's a perspective that you can have that allows you to find enjoyment in that vanity. And that perspective is when you see life as gift, not gain. Um, and I hope this has been clear, but this is different from meaninglessness, right? Uh, when the preacher says back in, in uh, last week's passage and Ecclesiastes 2.24, that there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. That's not him being nihilistic, right? He's not saying that life has no meaning at all. Uh, one person put it like this, that the preacher is not saying eat, drink, and be merry because that's all that there is, but because that's what there is, right? Because this is what God has graciously given to you in this life that is otherwise marked by vanity and futility and frustration. And so hopefully you guys uh, have been getting that distinction. Um, I think I remember someone mentioned after small groups last time that they felt like uh, they, they were having an existential crisis after hearing the sermons uh, in Ecclesiastes. And I think like, I think that's okay because Ecclesiastes can kind of do that. But I think hopefully it's been clear that the preacher is, isn't telling us that nothing matters. Right, That like all of a sudden studying for your exams or your commitments or your responsibilities don't matter uh, in the grand scheme of things. Rather, what the preacher is doing is he's helping us to put those things in their proper place. Okay, To put those things in their proper place. That all of these things, all of these pursuits are actually incredibly meaningful because they are things that are given to us from God. And even more than that, they're actually, they can even be enjoyable, right? Because they uh, are his gifts to us. 
And so uh, as we look in our passage for tonight, I think the preacher is going to continue that same idea. He's helping us to put things in their proper place. And specifically in chapter three, he's going to help us to do that when it comes to time. Okay. When you look in chapter three, time is the obvious keyword in the section. Um, and you guys are probably familiar with, I think, at least part of this chapter. Uh, it's this, we get this famous poem about the different times or seasons of our lives. Um, but our passage helps us to think through this question. How do we rightly make sense of time? And by time, he's not just talking about minutes, but also the moments and the seasons that compose our lives. How do we rightly make sense of that? Where does it, or, or uh, as we'll see, where do we belong when it's put in its proper place? And as I'm saying this, I hope you guys see how this is relevant for you guys as uh, college students, right? On one hand, you've probably heard how college is when you'll have some of the most free time in your entire lives. Um, like you have a bunch of free unstructured time, you can pursue hobbies, you can do whatever you want. And then on the other hand, I'm sure you've experienced the tyranny of the urgent, right? You've experienced like deadlines and midterms and finals. And I think in all of that, it's easy to act as if time is something that we need to master, right? It's easy to act as if time is just this resource that is at our disposal. Uh, I mean, you guys think about like, when you're like uh, trying to answer the question, oh, you need more time, like what's the solution? You just get less sleep, right? You just stay up longer. And so we think we just like function with this mentality that we're in control of time. And, and the, what, what the preacher is gonna show us is that our experience of time is yet another area in which we face the vanity of life under the sun, okay? But embracing that reality is actually a pathway to hope. Putting time and ourselves in our proper place gives us an opportunity to turn to and trust in the God who is sovereign over time. I think that's the big idea of our passage. So let's read um, Ecclesiastes chapter three. I'm gonna read the entire chapter. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter three. All right, starting in verse one. It says, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into, man, into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor nothing taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, 
even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. And so I saw that there is nothing better and that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? I think in our passage, uh, verses 1 to 8, it's often taken on its own. It's often removed from the rest of chapter 3. And uh, it shouldn't be. I think that's a mistake. Because as poetic as it is, it actually, as we'll see, it brings up this problem, okay, that verses 9 to 22 is supposed to help us answer. And so that's going to kind of guide our, um, our outline. We'll take it in three parts, uh, a poem for our lives, the problem with time, and then the purpose to fear God. Okay, so we'll start with point number one, a poem for our lives. Poem for our lives. I want you guys to pretend that you were back in your favorite class in high school, which is English, and that you were doing your favorite activity, um, which is analyzing poetry. Uh, said no one ever. <laughs> but I want you to notice a few features um, of this poem, okay, in verses one to eight. So if you look in verse one, uh, we get this introductory or summary statement, right? The preacher says, for everything, there is a season and, and a time for every matter under heaven. And then if you read through this poem, it gives us this motif or it gives us this refrain, this thing, that, that, this thing that's repeated, right? This is a time to blank and a time to blank. And, and you'll, no, you'll notice that each of these pairs is made up of opposites, right? They're made up of extremes. Um, for example, a time to be born, a time to die, uh, to pluck and to, or to plant and to pluck up what is planted, to kill and to heal, to break down and to build up. And uh, those aren't meant to be binary, okay, engineers. Uh, he's using a poetic device here, right? It's a way of saying there are, there are these two extremes and uh, he is capturing everything else in between, right? So for example, look in verse two, uh, the preacher says a time to be born and a time to die, right? And I think how we can think of this poem is the rest of the poem is everything else in between, right? Everything that happens be between your birth and your death, a whole variety of experiences and human activities that we do or that we encounter between those two uh, time markers. Uh, there's another way that the preacher communicates this idea of comprehensiveness and uh, it's in the number of pairs that we see in this poem. So if you count them, there's 14 pairs, okay? And uh, if you're familiar with the number seven in the Bible, 14 uh, is a multiple of seven, right? Seven often represents this idea of perfection, okay? Of wholeness, of totality and completion. You think of uh, God, he rested on the seventh day. And so hopefully you're starting to see what this preacher is trying to show us that this is, as we called it in our point, a poem of our lives, right? He wants us to read this and to see the whole uh, scope and expanse of life and not just focus on the parts. And so imagine him holding up this, this tapestry that's made up of the times and the seasons that compose our lives between our birth and our death. And when he holds this up and you stand back and you look at it, what do you see? 
Well, we see that life is complex. Right? We see that life is made up of good times, it's made up of hard times, and it's made up of everything that is in between. Now, I think uh, this poem is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. And, and all that means is like, this is describing life rather than telling us uh, something to do. Okay. And uh, like we said earlier, I think verses one to eight is not meant to be taken on its own apart from the rest of the passage. But I think there is one truth that we can take away from just these verses, right? And it's that life is complex. That life is made up of seasons. And I, we've already talked about how this is important, I think, in our first couple messages, right? We need to recognize uh, that, that life is, it's not simple and straightforward, right? We can't guarantee outcomes. You can't just plug into like this into the equation, then always expect to get that, or when it comes to why certain things happen in other people's lives, you can't just boil it down to some platitude uh, or some like spiritual lesson that needs to be learned. When we see all of these times and all of these seasons that the preacher mentions, I think we are supposed to recognize the complexity of life. That life so often swings from one extreme to another. Uh, it was just a couple weeks ago, right? we, we were happy to announce that a few of our Beacon staffers, um, so the Marinos and, and also Ray Kim and his wife, right, they're expecting in the coming months. Um, <clears throat> and that's, that's exciting, right? And uh, tomorrow, uh, we're going over to Bree's brother's place, and they're doing like this gender reveal thing. Um, they're doing a cake, not like some machinery that can explode and, and cause a forest fire. Uh, so, uh, but they're doing this cake thing and we're going to find out the gender of their second kid, right? And, and that's exciting, right? Birth and anticipating an upcoming birth is joyful. It's celebratory. And yet, I think we all experience this for all of those happy times. We can expect life sometimes to swing in the other direction as well. Uh, maybe some of you, even during the past couple months, you've experienced the loss of loved ones. You've attended a funeral. Uh, I remember talking to Pastor Jesse um, from, from Zoe Church and one of the church plant, or our church plant in Texas. Uh, I was talking to him a while back, and he told me how that year for their church was just particularly challenging. Because even though he had the privilege of marrying uh, one of the young couples at their church, that he also kind of unexpectedly had to officiate a few funerals. For, for church members. And so life is complicated, right? And, and when you read through these verses, I don't think that there is really like any kind of discernible structure. There's no order to these lines. In fact, when you look at uh, even some of these pairs, it's not always something between, it's not always between something like good and bad, right? Like in verse two, um, it says it's time to plant <clears throat> and it's time to pluck up what is planted. Like, what's good and what's bad there? And you realize, like, either can be good or bad, right? It kind of just depends on the appropriate time. And so I think his point is to point to this wide range of experiences, emotions, responses uh, to different circumstances that we encounter in our lives. And for us, it would be foolish to assume that we are going to be in one time or one season forever. It'd be foolish to assume that one kind of response is always going to be appropriate for every single situation. And so, I mean, even just from these verses alone, I think uh, one lesson we can learn is that the season or the seasons that you're in right now will not always be the season of your life. And, and understanding that helps to prepare us for the seasons that are still to come. 
I mean, I think this is a simple idea. We're not going to spend too much time on this, but I do think this is especially relevant for, for you guys in your stage of life as students. Okay, like what would it look like for you to humbly recognize that God has appointed various seasons for your life? I mean, think about some of the, like the major life transitions that you might experience in these years. Right? Moving out from your parents' house, graduation, uh, maybe relocating somewhere like totally brand new. Uh, maybe even leaving your local church family <clears throat> or like having just certain friendships, people you're really close to just change over the years. I mean, when you think about all of that, do you live with a recognition that God has appointed all of these seasons for you? And what difference would it make to your now, right? To your present season to begin to live in the fact, in light of the fact that there will be a then, that there might be a different season later on. And as we go on, we'll see that that then, right, is ultimately eternity and not just the next season. But how would your life look different if you lived with that healthy expectation for change? Uh, one author put it this way, what, if, what would life look like if you actively embrace the fact of change in advance of change? If you actively embrace the fact of change in advance of change. <clears throat> and so for you guys, as you take inventory of your own life, uh, what are some things that you need to learn to hold with a looser grip? Uh, what are some things that you need to acknowledge that, hey, like this could change before I know it? And I, I think this isn't all sad, right? I think there is comfort to be found in this. You know, seasons of sadness and suffering is not all that there is. And we'll unpack this more later on. Um, but David Gibson, he puts it like this. He says, with eyes to see, we are meant to learn that where we are now is not where we will always be. When we're dancing, most of us don't realize that we are creating memories with people whom we will one day mourn. When we're weeping, we rarely think that in a few weeks' time, we could be laughing again. And so like we said earlier, I think uh, it might be tempting to just stop right here, right? And, and just like meditate on the seasons of life to just take this poem on its own. But the preacher is actually raising a problem, okay? And he's going to address this problem in the rest of this passage, um, like we said at the beginning, the passing of time is one of the areas in which we experience the vanity of this life. Okay, and so that leads us to our second point, which is the problem with time. The problem with time. Look at verse 9. He says, What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I don't know about you, but when I read verses 9 to 10, it feels like kind of a strange way to follow up like that really beautiful poem in verses one to eight, right? But I think he does that because he identify, he's identifying um, two human problems for us when it comes to time, okay? And the first one has to do with our experience. It's that we can't control time, okay? We can't control time. <clears throat> uh, I just said that one of the comforts from the preacher's poem in verses one to eight is that we can know that the hard parts of life, right? The, the times of weeping and the times of mourning, that they're not all that there is, that they can sometimes quickly and they can unexpectedly be followed by joyful parts of life, right? We can be laughing and dancing before we know it. And that is the natural ebb and flow of life. But if you flip what I just said, and I, I think you start to realize one significant problem with time. 
which is that we experience the good things in life. And as much as we might try to remain in it, or we might try to lengthen those times, the reality is, is that we cannot keep time from ticking. Um, C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He says, the future is something which everyone reaches at the rate of 60 minutes an hour, whatever he does, whoever he is. And so time and the seasons of our lives, they are outside of our control. And I think when you read through like verses one to eight, uh, you'll, you'll notice that man isn't mentioned at all, right? And I think the reason for that is because this poem is not man-centered. Uh, man is not the main actor in this poem. One commentator says this about that word for time. He says, the preacher never uses this word elsewhere to denote the idea of an ideal time in accordance with which humans, human beings should act. Rather, it occurs in the sense of an appointed time, which is imposed from without in accordance with which the object must act. You get what the commentator is saying there? He's saying the poem isn't talking about the choices that we make, right? Even though I think there's wisdom in this, uh, it's not like trying to make us think, oh, should I weep now or should I laugh now? Rather, I think the point is it's showing us how subject we are to the seasons of life that we're in. We simply respond as human beings to the seasons of life. We simply respond to time. And that is because time rules over us. Time dictates and shapes our lives. It's appropriate to plant or to pluck up, to keep silent or to speak uh, for love or for peace based on the circumstances that are outside of us. Let me just give you a really simple example. Um, Think about the clothes that you decide to put on each day. And yeah, sure, like part of it is your own personal sense of style um, or preference. But why did you decide to put on a sweater instead of a t-shirt? Or why did you decide to wear your rain boots instead of uh, your sandals? It's because in a very significant way, the weather outside, something that is totally outside of your control, dictated that for you. Now, I think there is, uh, in chapter three here, there is a more positive tone compared to what we've seen so far in these first couple chapters. But I think you guys think back to that that kind of seesaw-like rhythm in uh, chapter one, Ecclesiastes chapter one, right? It's supposed to make us think back to that, that repetitive cycle of nature. Ecclesiastes one, one to 11. And I think uh, like the preacher is kind of wrestling here with what makes our human lives different than that unrelenting, relenting cycle of nature. That sure, your life might be composed of some really significant seasons and experiences. Maybe you've experienced some really high highs, uh, but also some really low lows. But for everyone, the preacher recognizes there's a time when they're born and there's a time when they're going to die. And after that, after you die, time will still keep marching on. I think for many of us, we have this idea, right, of how we want to Um, build our lives. We have this idea or this plan of how we hope things will turn out. And maybe you look at where you are right now in life and, and it seems like, like it's the product of all of the different pieces of your life that you've put together. Right. And uh, maybe for you, if you're thinking about like, how would the poem of my life look like if I wrote it myself, uh, we would probably write in a lot more good times and bad times, right? More dancing and laughing than mourning and weeping. 
I think here the preacher is showing us just how little control we really have over the times of our lives. I mean, think about it. Why were you born to your parents in this particular time period rather than that one? Why does it seem like your time for weeping is lasting so much longer than that other person's? And we realize that these things were not up to us to determine. But that's not all. There's another problem that the preacher reveals to us, and it's in verse 11. So if you look at verse 11, he says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning. Okay, so if, if this first problem had to do with our human experience, then I think we can say that time also presents us with this problem of understanding. Okay, understanding uh, that we don't have all the answers. Uh, we don't know how the pieces fit together. I think in verse 11, a lot of people like that, the first half of it, right? When it says that God has made uh, everything beautiful in its time, the preacher is talking about how like all of these puzzle pieces beautifully fit together, right? That's the beautiful part, how they fit together, that God gives order to the times and seasons of our lives mentioned in verses one to eight. Um, And we'll talk more about this later because I think the preacher wants to take us somewhere else first. Where he wants to take us is he wants us to realize that we as human beings, that we don't have that ability. We don't have that perspective or vantage point. Um, it's kind of like that illustration that Seichi shared about the signal box right at the train station. Hopefully, hopefully you guys remember that. Um, we don't have access to go up to the top, right, and to see, like, the big map of why this train was on time and this train was late and where this train is going and the big picture of why things work together or how things work together. Um, look at how the preacher puts it in verse 11. He says, he has put eternity in a man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Uh, that, that first part, uh, when it talks about God putting eternity into man's heart, I think it's another one of those verses that people like to, uh, like they really like that part. They like to take it on its own. Um, and I think what it's talking about there is how we as human beings, uh, we as God's image bearers, we have this inherent sense or we have this hint uh, sometimes that we're just like a small part of something bigger. Right? We're just a part of something that is beyond us. That if the times and seasons in verses 1 to 8 are like a bunch of Lego pieces, uh, we get this hint sometimes that, oh, like these are supposed to actually make something, right? They're supposed to fit together to make something uh, like we can recognize. Um, One commentator describes it like this. He says, humans are bound by time, but they are wired for eternity. They intuitively know that there must be meaning somewhere and that they were made for more, more than vain toil. Right, so like... I think we really like that phrase that God has put eternity into man's heart. But I think keep reading and we see that the main takeaway isn't really supposed to be like, oh, we feel all special, right? Like, oh, this is how we're different than the rest of creation. Animals don't have this. Like we have this um, because we're, we're special. I, I think that's true. But I think we're actually supposed to walk away from this feeling vexed and frustrated. Right? We're supposed to walk away from this more aware, not of our distinction between us and like animals or us and the rest of creation, but more aware of our, the distinction between us and God. Right? Look at what it says. It says that God has given us this sense. And yet that same God who's given us that has frustrated our understanding. 
It says that we cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. That we are, we are here trying to fathom eternity while we're still stuck between these boundaries of time. And so it's impossible for us to have complete understanding. Derek Kidner puts it like this. He says, we are like the desperately nearsighted, inching their way along some great tapestry or fresco. A fresco is a painting um, in the attempt to take it in. We see enough to recognize something of its quality, but the grand design escapes us for we can never stand back far enough to view it as its creator does, whole and entire from the beginning to the end. I think for us, it's not wrong to ask uh, big questions of significance. Okay, in fact, I think we learn here that it's natural for us to do so, right? It's natural for us actually to reason, to analyze, to try to figure life out, to try to search for meaning and purpose. But I think what the preacher is showing us is that at some point, right, we have to recognize that we just don't have all of the information. We just don't have all of the answers. We don't have complete understanding. And so, Beacon, what are areas of your life where you're operating according to some information that you do not and that you cannot have? You know, oftentimes, as much as we don't know, I think we, there is something we do have, and that's God's word. Right? God's word does equip us with better questions to ask. Um, and even more than that, God's word, God's word equips us with answers. Right? It, it tells us the next steps to take. And so as you think about just like how much we don't know, how limited we are, go to scripture. Right? If you're wondering, hey, why is this difficult season in your life right now? Well, Reality is we don't have the answer to that, right? Not a comprehensive answer, but at least one purpose, according to a passage like James 1, 2 to 4, is that the end result of this hard season of your life is that it will result in greater steadfastness and greater Christ-likeness, right? That is not comprehensive information, but it's enough to equip you to steward this season well. And so as you're listening to all of this, um, Are you having another like existential crisis yet? Are you depressed? Like, are you feeling overwhelmed? Well, there's a purpose to all of this, right? We're we're going somewhere and this is how uh, the preacher operates. And I think actually, if you've been reading carefully, we've already seen hints of this throughout our passage. And so this takes us to our last point, which is the purpose um, to fear God. Purpose to fear God. So we said earlier that there is this kind of like unsettling resemblance between the ebb and flow of this like really beautiful poem in verses one and eight, one to eight, and that like really uh, repetitive, frustrating cycle of nature back in chapter one, right? There's this like similarity to it, which is I think what drives the preacher to make his question in verses nine and 10. But it's similar, but it's also different. And I think we see here that there is this more distinctly positive tone And we see that because the preacher brings up something that has actually been missing, uh, mostly missing so far in Ecclesiastes. And that's how God is involved in our lives under the sun. He brings God into the picture. He gives us God's perspective. And like I said, if you've been reading carefully, I think there are clues here and there. Um, For example, in verse one, notice that the preacher locates us not under that familiar phrase of under the sun, but he says under heaven. And I I mean, commentators, they're not totally sure 
why he does that, but some think that it's because he's bringing God into the picture. He's, he's making, making the lens even wider um, to include God. Or when you look at the word time in our passage, right? If you look at just like the progression of how this word is used, we see that God changes and redeems the meaning of it a little bit. Um, in verses one to eight, it started out as this like tyrant, right? As this thing that like doesn't stop for anyone, this thing that dictates and rules over our lives. But when you bring God into the picture, when you begin to see from his perspective, when we start to understand ourselves and time in relation to God, we begin to realize that the times and the seasons of our lives are personally appointed to God, are appointed by God, right? They're not just arbitrary. They're not just, they don't just randomly appear. And if you look in verse 11, right, God changes time, that word, which uh, was talking about this like tyrannical thing, and he changes it into something that's actually going to reveal his beautiful providence. And so let's go back to the preacher's question in verses 9 to 10, right? He says, what gain has the worker from his toil? Um, in other words, is all of this just meaningless, right? Is there, uh, is there any significance to the times and the seasons of our lives? Is it all for nothing? And God's answer to that question is no, that's not how things are at all, right? When you begin to see from his perspective, you realize that the times and the seasons of our lives are incredibly meaningful. And this doesn't mean that you'll have all the answers. It doesn't mean that you, will, you won't experience some seasons that you, that you wish would rather not come. But what we begin to see is that the frustration and the vanity of time under the sun is meant to point us back to the God of all time and all seasons. We see that only what God does endures forever. And from his perspective, that there is a time for every season of your life under heaven. The preacher shows us that God promises us that he will make everything beautiful in its time. And this is how the preacher puts in in verse 14. Where he says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor nothing taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Right? God has done it so that people fear before him. What does it mean to fear God? <clears throat> I think part of it is uh, this sense of reverence, okay? um, to acknowledge our status as, as creatures in relation to our creator, um, if you jump ahead to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, the very end, the preacher says to fear God is to keep his commandments. But I think more fundamentally, the fear of God, especially in the Old Testament, refers to just being in relationship with him, right? All of this is meant to drive us into a deeper and closer relationship with God, right? To fear God is not just to have terror before him, but to have a trust in him. To, to go to him despite all of the unknowns and all of the uncertainties when it comes to time. Uh, to fear God is to have a humble and dependence on our creator. It is to learn to grow small before him. And I think as we read in these, the rest of this passage, it gives us two specific ways that we learn to grow small. Okay? Um, or two specific ways that we learn to fear God. Um, and the first one is this, to fear God with our time is to live within our limitations. To fear God with our time is to live within our limitations. Look at verse 12. <clears throat> he says, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. 
also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. So I think that should sound a little bit familiar because it's uh, pretty similar to verses 24 to 26 of chapter two, which we looked at last week. Right. And, and the lesson from that is that we receive time and we receive everything from God as gift, not gain, right. As gift, not gain. And I think specifically in this passage, um, we see that we receive the times and the seasons of our lives as gifts from God, right? As things that he has appointed. Uh, I think for us, that's hard because one way that we often use our time as a means of gain rather than gift is uh, when we believe that we can manage our lives better than God can, right? We think we know what is good for us or we consume ourselves with questions that we simply don't have the answers to. And what our passage does is it wakes us up and it shows us just like how limited our perspectives are. Uh, for us, we learn and we experience things as they come to us in time. And only God gets the whole picture. We just have these like pieces just scattered everywhere. Only God knows how they're supposed to fit together. God can manage our lives better than we can. And when we live in recognition of that, right, when we receive time as a gift rather than as a means to gain, then there's freedom and there's enjoyment and there's hope. Uh, I, just, I think just one way to illustrate this is um, there's a lot of different kinds of uh, people when they go on vacation or when they travel somewhere, right? And if you've ever traveled with uh, a group of friends or, or family, you know what I'm talking about, right? You have those people, uh, those kinds of people who want to plan everything out, right? Like down to the second, um, they want to max out like every waking moment. They want to wake up early when they're on vacation um, because they want to like take advantage of the time that they're there. They're all about the details, right? Super detailed itinerary. And then on the other hand, you have the people who don't plan anything, right? And um, that's relaxing, but sometimes that backfires because you don't do anything, right? And you're like, well, like what did we do in Hawaii again? Um, and like you think about these different kinds of people and some combinations work really well. And then other combinations, they just like, it totally ruins your vacation, right? It's, it's really bad. Um, I think from my own experience, I feel like some of my most enjoyable trips have been uh, when I, like I'm pretty low key. I don't really care for planning too much. So for me, some of the most enjoyable trips have been when there's someone else to figure that out for me, right? Someone else to like coordinate all of the details of the itinerary, figure out how we're going to get there, the places we're going to hit up. Um, and, and like, I don't have to worry about how we're going to get from here to there. I don't have to think about what time that restaurant closes. Um, I don't think have to think about like where we're going to pick up the rental car. Um, I know that someone else is better than me at that stuff. Right. And it, I, like, I'm glad that I don't have to coordinate all of that because if I did, I would stress out over it and it wouldn't be a fun vacation, but because someone else is planning it for me, because someone else is taking care of the details, I am free to enjoy everything as it comes, right? That's what the preacher is talking about here, right? You leave the details, there's all of this information that we have no access to. You leave it up to God to manage because he's better at it than you are. And you just enjoy life as it comes to you as a gift. And that is a life that is lived well in God's world. And so we can, we need to learn to pray um, like David did in Psalm 131. I think Pastor Kim preached from here not too long ago. But he said, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself 
with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Right? Our limitations are meant to drive us to God, right? to God of all time. And a second way that we fear God with our time is to recognize the significance of the small but meaningful things we do today, right now. To fear God with our time is to recognize the significance of the small but meaningful things that we do today, right now. I think especially as young people, it's easy to be, it's easy to be so future-oriented that everything in the present right now becomes just like filling the gap, right? It's just like, it's, it's just uh, this thing between right now and like where you hope to be later on. But I think what this passage shows us is that every time, every season, every moment is meaningful to God. And when you look in verse 15, that phrase there, that God seeks what is driven away, that, that picture there is a shepherd who is searching out a lost sheep. I think some other translations, it renders it as this idea of like future judgment. And I think that's there. We see that again in chapter 12. Um, but I think there's a little bit more than that. Uh, one commentator describes it like this. He says, the language of seeking is so positive that it suggests that God is looking to redeem the past and not simply to render judgment. By his grace, he will recover and restore what seems from our vantage point to be lost forever. What is he, what is he saying? With God, there is nothing wasted or forgotten. And I think on one hand, that's like, that's kind of sobering, isn't it? That every single day that happens will have its day in court. That even in a life that is so quickly fleeting, that we are accountable for the things that we do because they are, all of it is seen by God. But I think on the other hand, this is a great comfort for us. What is forgotten to others or what is even forgotten to ourselves isn't forgotten to God. And that one day he is going to make everything right. And we're not going to be able to really get into verses 16 to 22, but I think this is what those verses are talking about, that in this life under the sun, there is, the preacher looks around and he sees that there is injustice where there should be justice and righteousness. Um, but that is not the final product, right? It's, it's not going to stay that way. Every injustice, every wrong, every hurt is going to fit into this tapestry that God promises is going to be beautiful when all is said and done. That what is seemingly random and disordered from our vantage point isn't that way for God. And so for us, that means that even though like, we don't know how all of the pieces are going to come together, even on the very last day of your life, you won't even know necessarily what that final thing is going to look like. But what we will know is that it's going to be beautiful in its time, right? Because it's going to be arranged by the wise and the loving and the good hands of God. And so every moment is meaningful. You're not just the ones that are in the spotlight, not just the ones that get people's attention, not just the ones that are remembered, but even the ones that are unseen, even the ones that are quickly forgotten, even the ones that are done in secret. And so, I mean, for you guys, pursue faithfulness. Pursue obedience, do his commandments, do good, even if no one sees it, it's meaningful to God. There's one more thought as we close here. I know we haven't um, really mentioned the gospel that explicitly so far in our study of Ecclesiastes, um, but I do want to mention it in, our, in the context of our passage for tonight. I think as people on this side of the cross, that we do have more perspective than the preacher did. Right? And uh, maybe it's still not this like totally complete understanding 
of this tapestry that God has knitted together. But when we, when we read in scripture, it does tell us about God's bigger story, right? It does tell us about how God is making things beautiful. It does tell us that the grand narrative of all of history is that God is redeeming for himself a bride, the church through Jesus Christ. And when you think about that story and when you think about the fact that this story involved a cross, right? When, it, when you think about the fact that it involves a crucified Messiah, a God who suffers on the behalf of sinners, then you realize that there is nothing in this story that does not fit, right? There is nothing in your life that does not fit. And if he can make something beautiful out of that, right? Out of a God that suffers, And then for us, we can trust him with the times and the seasons of our lives as well. Let's pray. God, we do thank you that you are um, the God of the seasons and times of our lives. That uh, when we are confronted with our limitations, our lack of knowledge, uh, just our finitude, God, as, as creatures living in this world, that we can turn to you um, and we can trust that everything that is in our lives uh, is is given to us through the loving hands of a personal God, a God who has promised that uh, that you will make everything beautiful in its time. And so, uh, Father, we do ask that you would teach us just to have a proper perspective on time. God, teach us how to learn to grow small in light of just how big you are in light of how small we are um, in this world uh, and, and help us to, to turn and to go more quickly to you, um, to trust in you, to fear you and to obey you. And so God, we thank you. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen.